Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 157, Rebels and Railways. Now, first, we've got a lot of patrons from this month to thank. So, start with Preston P., Konstantin Kostov, and Mary Teresa Howell for becoming patrons, or in some cases, becoming patrons again. And to Kodor Gaidanov and Mehmet Baran for increasing their pledges. Also, a big thank you to David Lobeko, I think, I hope I pronounced your name right, otherwise I apologize, and Krum Dukin for their generous donations. And now, let's get into the episode. Last time, Prince Ferdinand was attempting to settle into his new role, becoming frustrated with the vast difference in social life between Sofia and Vienna and Paris, what he was more used to. He also began forming a government, and after several failed attempts, it became clear that Stefan Stambolov was the only man capable of forming a functional government at this time. The two men certainly rubbed each other the wrong way as they came from incredibly different backgrounds, but they managed a productive working relationship nonetheless. An election was held in which Stambolov's usual intimidation tactics helped him secure an overwhelming majority in the National Assembly. Meanwhile, Russia was again throwing money around in a desperate attempt to find someone willing and able to assassinate Ferdinand and bring about a pro-Russian regime in Sofia. Lastly, Ferdinand and Stambolov together began an enormous investment in the Bulgarian army, both to improve its effectiveness and its loyalty. Lastly, on the European stage, misinterpreted statements about Ferdinand very nearly brought the continent to war. And that's where we pick up today. It's now about the spring of 1888, and Ferdinand is still frustrated that no great power will recognize him, but he's still settling into his role somewhat successfully. Stambolov, for his part, is cementing his grip on the Bulgarian state and beginning the era of Bulgarian history, which will come to be named after him. And although we're now in 1888, I do want to start with mentioning an incident which took place in the final weeks of 1887. At that time, a small band of armed men, mostly Montenegrins, recruited from what one source called the slums of Constantinople and led by pro-Russian officers. This group invaded the area around Burgas and Sozopol in another Russian-backed attempt to provoke an uprising against the government in Sofia. However, the local man in charge in Burgas gathered soldiers and met these invaders and killed several in an hour-long battle. Afterwards, the men remaining fled, and their leader was ultimately captured and, well, basically chased and shot by peasants into some woods. Unsurprisingly, Bulgaria as a whole was pretty outraged by the whole affair, and loudly pointed to the fact that the leader of this whole endeavor, Nabokov, was a Russian officer. Not like a former Russian officer, but a current member of the Russian military. 
Now, after the Russian press denied this, the Bulgarians found his frozen body dead in the woods, still dressed with its uniform, covered in decorations, and took photographs as proof. This grisly image was then sent to Russian media and foreign diplomats alike as proof positive that Russia was behind the whole thing. But to make matters worth, worse, not only did Nabokov undertake this clandestine mission in full military uniform, but he actually traveled with a plethora of documents laying out the entire plot as well as Russia's role in it. Now, Constant's biography of Ferdinand, uh, quick apologies, I initially misread the, the side of the book and thought that the author of this biography of Tsar Ferdinand was Watts, but that's actually the publisher. The writer is Constant. So apologies and uh, retroactive change of those, that's who I was talking about. But Constant's biography of Ferdinand has an interesting take on these Russian efforts, writing, quote, It seems astonishing that with all the power and agents at his disposal, the Tsar should have failed to get Ferdinand blown up or kidnapped. It is almost as if the series of fiascos which marked successive Russian organized conspiracies was a reflection of Alexander's split personality over the Bulgarian question. While one part of him was consumed with a pathological hatred of Ferdinand, another part of him felt distinctly uncomfortable about plotting the downfall of another sovereign. His grandfather, Nicholas I, had argued that terrorism and subversion were indivisible. If you fostered it abroad, it could boomerang home. The Tsar's own intense fears of assassination after his father's death at the hand of terrorists seriously impaired the courage of his convictions about Bulgaria. How would it look if he did succeed in killing Prince Ferdinand and Europe blamed him for sponsoring an act whose very mention in Russia was enough to land a man in Siberia for the rest of his life? End quote. So this is some fairly interesting analysis, right? That the, the Tsar of Russia, on the one hand, desperately wants to kind of yeah, assassinate Ferdinand, but he's also deeply paranoid about assassination himself and so is a bit uncomfortable about the whole situation. While the Tsar certainly had mixed feelings about his government's actions in Bulgaria, they ultimately didn't stop him from con continuing to try to install a pro-Russian regime there. However, the catastrophic failure of the Nabokov mission did convince Russia to shift its strategy. As we've discussed, the Russians long believed that the bulk of the Bulgarian population was pro-Russian, and if given the chance, they would rise up against the government in favor of whatever force Russia managed to get in. However, the actions of everyday Bulgarians, for example, in killing members of Nabokov's band, seemed to sort of put that myth to rest. As a result, Russia shifted towards attempts to orchestrate a coup or assassination rather than a general uprising. But while Russia was changing its strategy, Stambulov was doubling down. While his approach to politics had honestly never really changed much, he was now embracing the slogan, Bulgaria for the Bulgarians, to reflect his devotion to Bulgarian autonomy at all costs. In the past, this meant fighting the Ottomans. Now, it meant working with them against Russian encroachment. So this kind of slogan, this is how basically Stambulov tied together all of his activities, you know, fighting the Ottomans, joining and sort of working closely with the Ottomans, all of it in his worldview is for Bulgarian autonomy. 
Now, the irony was, as is so often the case with strong men like Stambolov, that while he stated over and over that everything he did was in the national interest, Perry rightly points out that, well, Stambolov was the one deciding what the national interest was. Perry writes how he, quote, guarded the constitution and trampled upon it, using only those parts that enabled him to control affairs through such methods as arbitrary incarcerations, end quote. Indeed, jail sentences for things like insulting or threatening Ferdinand range from one month to five years. The National Assembly granted the police the power to detain people purely based on suspicion. People were sent to asylums, put under house arrest, or even expelled from Bulgaria based on their opposition to Stambolov. However, Perry also fairly contrasts this with the actions of more famous dictators like Hitler or Stalin. And to be clear, Stambolov wasn't really a dictator. He, he did have popular support, and even if the elections were not super fair, he still seems to have had that support. But anyways, comparing to more famous people like Hitler or Stalin, Stambolov never used tactics like mass imprisonment, mass deportation, genocide, or the you know outright murder of his opponents. Now, some of his opponents did die as a result of their opposition, and in this and the next episode we'll get into some of those. But still, Stambolov, you know, as far as strongmen go, he wasn't uh, the kind of murderous type. He's very brutal, iron fist, but yeah, not uh, on the extreme end of that spectrum. And now, frankly, this is a topic that's going to come up a lot in our podcast going forward. On the one hand, we can easily view Stambolov as a mere tyrant. But on the other hand, many at the time viewed his authoritarian style as critical for providing the kind of stability Bulgaria needed at this stage in its development. However, his turning of the National Assembly into essentially a rubber stamp parliament also, without a doubt, prevented Bulgaria's political culture from developing. Granted, Bulgaria had no real democratic tradition. It had an Ottoman tradition, and if you go further back, a Byzantine tradition, both of which more or less relied on promoting your friends and family instead of anything approaching a democracy or a meritocracy. Perry writes how, quote, Stambolov freely admitted that he wanted to control affairs. He felt that freedom was expensive and that people were willing to sacrifice a little freedom for security because what they wanted most was security of life and property. And he evidently judged the public mood accurately for his government and party had significant popular support, end quote. So, you know, this can be understood by remembering that the vast majority of Bulgarians were still agricultural peasants whose main focus were agricultural policies, security, and low taxes. Stambolov spoke to them and cultivated their support through policies like providing credit to farmers and redistributing land taken from large Turkish landowners to largely landless peasants. So I'm not ready to come down on either side of this debate over how we should view Stambolov just yet. But I want you all to keep this in mind as we cover Stambolov in more detail. So, again, on the one hand, you could view him as merely a tyrant or an authoritarian and therefore sort of a, a negative actor. But, again, I think you could also make the argument that, you know, Bulgaria's democratic system was extremely underdeveloped and very chaotic. And that perhaps without Stambolov's kind of strong hand, 
It could have spiraled out of control and turned into something like a royal dictatorship from Ferdinand. That was certainly possible, and Ferdinand threatened it at one point. So, yeah, that's why Stumbluff to me is a fascinating character and a complex character and a different, difficult one to understand, right? He he had a long career in politics, uh, even well, mostly just because he started so young. Um, but he, yeah, he, his authoritarianism is, is hard to kind of square. You know, today, in today's climate, it's fairly easy to see it as negative, but I want us to also look at it from the perspective of people at the time. But... This, you know, thinking about Stumbleoff's role in these years, these, you know, su- you know, kind of early years after independence, uh, I think it's clear that the chaos and the instability of Bulgaria's first decade of, again, semi-independence from the Ottoman Empire, that's the context here. This was a decade which otherwise could have been used to kind of begin the process of creating a real Bulgarian political culture and setting the foundation for future economic prosperity. But unfortunately, I feel like this decade was largely about the power of Battenberg, Russia's wildly inconsistent and distracting activities in Bulgaria, that these were the focuses of those 10 years. And that as a result, an appallingly small amount of progress seems to have been made in such a long time. And to me, that, that's the real tragedy. And whether or not you see Stambolov as a justified response to that 10 years of kind of lack of progress, that's up to you. But in any case, it was clear that Bulgaria had a lot more development to do. Perry's book gives statistics from 1888 showing that of a population of 3 million Bulgarians, there were fewer than 27,000 merchants, fewer than 700 people classified as professionals like lawyers, physicians, journalists, etc., and just under 52,000 craftsmen. If you add up those three groups, and it makes up less than 3% of the population. So, I mean, it's not exactly the math, but you can imagine, you know, well over 90% of the population are peasants. And you can imagine the conclusion here is that the Bulgarian middle class is virtually non-existent at this point. And Stambolov rightly saw the development of that middle class as being absolutely critical to Bulgaria's future economic and social development. However, in that, Stambula faced the classic dilemma of the autocrat. Because developing the middle class helps the economy, no doubt. But middle classes usually also want greater political freedoms to match their increasing economic prosperity. So, as Perry puts it, Stambula's fostering of industrial and economic development to create a middle class also meant he was, in a way, sowing the seeds for his own future downfall. That's in the future. For now, all this brings us to two interconnected issues, banditry and the Vienna to Constantinople railway. It won't be called the Orient Express for another couple years, but you know, when I say Vienna to Constantinople railway, you can think of Orient Express. Now you'll recall from the episode covering travel in Bulgaria before 1878 that banditry on the roads was extremely common and many travelers passing through Bulgaria basically felt the need to hire an armed escort to safely pass through the country. Well, cases of brigands kidnapping and ransoming foreigners increased around the time of Battenberg's downfall and his coup and everything, because, well, it makes sense, right? Central authority was not super well established. It was a lot of chaos and things, and so a lot of brigands took advantage. This led to two instances 
where men working on the Bulgarian portion of the Vienna to Constantinople rail line were kidnapped and ransomed. Although both were eventually released and Sambalov sent forces after the brigands who did it, killing about half the 40 men in the company, this still resulted in substantial harm to Bulgaria's reputation. And, well, that makes some sense. You can imagine someone considering investing in Bulgaria might think twice after reading a story about this in a Vienna newspaper. So, to combat this reputation, Ferdinand decided to travel to the Rila Monastery sometime during 1888, to couldn't find an exact date, along with his court photographer, who was tasked with photographing plants and animals. Remember, Ferdinand was a passionate naturalist, so, well, this made sense. And if you've never been to the Rila Mountains and the Rila Monastery, it's a gorgeous place with lots of interesting plants and animals. Well, Ferdinand wrapped up the trip and decided to head home to Sofia while his photographer was still working. And so Ferdinand traveled back on his own and left his assistant and the photographer. The problem was that that assistant and photographer were soon mistaken for Stambolov and some other official and captured by brigands. Although the brigands soon realized that this was not the prime minister in their custody, they still decided to hold the men for ransom. The brigands and their captives spent a full six weeks living in the dense forests of Rila, moving constantly to evade the police before finally releasing the captives and fleeing to Serbia to claim political asylum. However, the brigands were in possession of many items that were stolen from the captives, and so the Serbs were, well, basically had an easy time figuring out exactly who they were. And the entire band was extradited to Bulgaria, where they were put on trial and executed. Only one man in the company was given life in prison instead of death because he had befriended the captives and shown them some kindness. This also showed that while in years past, Serbia had been a pretty consistent safe haven for Bulgarian rebels, recent improving relations between Belgrade and Sofia meant that the Serbs were now cooperating with the Bulgarians in suppressing these kinds of criminals. But I mentioned the connection with the Vienna-Constantinople Railway because obviously this brigandage caused issues with its construction. But despite that, it was finally completed on June the 23rd, 1888, with the first train on the line arriving in Sofia on August the 1st. Now, for the first time in history, Sofia was linked to a broader European rail network. And within a year, trains of the newly dubbed Orient Express would be running consistently from Paris through Sofia to the Ottoman capital. Now, I couldn't find exact information on how long this took, but you can imagine this cut travel time in and out of Bulgaria dramatically. Now, diplomats, industrialists, and the few Bulgarians who could afford it at the time could all travel to Europe efficiently and in comfort compared to taking the steamer on the Danube and then taking a carriage journey down to Sofia through territory for which you needed to hire guards to prevent being kidnapped and ransomed, this was a major improvement. If you click on the link in the description here to the accompanying blog post, you can see a map of the rail network in 1888, and you can see how Bulgaria was kind of connected to the world. Now, all of this brings us to summer and early fall of 1888. By this point, Stambolov had reached his first anniversary of being appointed prime minister, although we know he was running the regency for years before that. But still, it's his first anniversary. And in this context, by this point, opposition to Stambolov was 
evolving right alongside his authoritarian methods. Remember that in 1887, when Stambulov formed his government, it was a coalition, including men that he didn't really like or trust very much. As a result, by this point, you had two major resignations from the two main conservatives in the government, Stoilov and Natchevich. Stoilov was frustrated that Stambulov would not allow him to run his ministry without interference, and Natchevich resigned in solidarity with Stoilov, although he too was increasingly angry at Stambulov for the way he ran the government. Now, ironically, Stambulov then actually offered Stoilov a diplomatic position in Vienna, although he declined. The same offer was then extended to Natchevich, who decided to accept it and use the position to campaign against Stambulov in the foreign capital, although he never really had much impact in doing so. Still, both men were ardent conservatives, and as a result, they had very little real political power because, as you'll recall, even though the conservatives were for a time one of the major political factions in Bulgaria, they have never had very much popular support, and nowadays virtually none. But people who did have some political support were people like Radoslavov and his splinter party, and they were also steadily evolving. Interestingly, they agreed with Stambulov and his opposition to Russia and its encroachment on Bulgarian affairs, and they also supported the uh, Ferdinand. So the real difference between Radoslav and Stambulov at this point was basically disagreement on Stambulov's authoritarian style of governance. All this meant that not a single political force in Bulgaria at this time, at least a major one, supported Russia. And as a result, Russia could no longer simply support an opposition party because there was no one for them to support. So Russia, at this point, they tried to actually convince Stambulov personally to change his views on Russia, but that wasn't going anywhere. So Russia now shifted to a strategy of encouraging Stambulov's authoritarianism in the hopes it would spark greater opposition or even a revolt. This also meant that the last segment of Bulgarian society was now truly opposed to Ferdinand and in support of Russia was the Bulgarian Orthodox Church. So, in late 1888, Stambulov began a concentrated effort to address that situation. In November, he informed the Holy Synod that it should, take a, that it should basically address its concerns about these political issues directly to the National Assembly. In response, the church brought up their desire to see Bulgarian exiles who had participated in overthrowing Battenberg and leading various uprisings return to Bulgaria. On the one hand, many of these exiles could potentially stir up trouble and act against the government if they were allowed back in the country. As we know, Russia has been desperately searching for people they could pay to lead a coup or an assassination. And these would frankly be prime candidates. On the other hand, this was an opportunity for some reconciliation. As a result, the issue prompted some real debate in the National Assembly, and ultimately they decided to allow all the exiles to return except for Benderev, Dmitriev, and Gruev. But even though that was resolved, this was far from the only issue that the church had. In fact, Ferdinand visited Velikoturnovo that year, and the local bishop, Clement, refused to even meet him. Conveniently, Russia had also recently sent him 50,000 rubles to uh, encourage his opposition to the prince. Stambulov responded by removing him and other hardcore Rusophils from some government positions, 
but they were still adamant in their opposition to Ferdinand. All of this came to a head when the Holy Synod met in Sofia in mid-December. Only the pro-Russian bishops actually attended, and the assembly renewed its opposition to both Ferdinand and Stambolov, arguing in particular that Ferdinand was spreading Catholicism in Bulgaria. Stambolov, in response, refused to recognize the legality of the meeting, but the bishops didn't really care. Then, one bishop refused to mention Ferdinand's name in a church service held at the Svetonadelia Church in Central Sofia, further angering Stambolov. His response was to order them to leave the capital, but they refused. Stambolov then tried to have the exarch himself personally order them to do so, but the exarch refused. So, in the final days of 1888, the bishops were given a new ultimatum. They had three days to leave the city. Again, they refused. So at three in the morning on New Year's Eve, they were all rudely awoken and escorted out of Sofia by police. The bishops were incensed and argued that they were not subject to Stambolov's authority, but only that of the exarch. Stambolov's response was rather simple, saying, quote, I sent the gendarmes to arrest the bishops, for these gentlemen who were convoked in synod occupied themselves not with their own affairs, but with matters which did not concern them. These gentlemen thought themselves placed above the laws, and they resisted." Indeed, Stambolov's harsh actions were prompted by intelligence reports that the bishops were actually planning to denounce Ferdinand on Orthodox New Year's, that's in early January, and begin a Russophile rebellion. Stambolov then attempted to improve relations by writing to the exarch directly that he would not interfere in religious matters if the church would refrain from interfering in political matters. Sadly, this didn't really help the situation, and instead things only escalated further. In January, Bishop Clement of Ternovo not only omitted Ferdinand's name from his service, but used his service to openly condemn the government and its Catholic monarch. This was so inflammatory that even a Russian diplomat told the exarch that the bishop needed to cut it out. While Russia, or with Russian support rather, the exarch finally wrote to church officials telling them to please place the church first and to only engage in passive opposition to the government. Everyone agreed, except Bishop Clement. In fact, he escalated things further traveling to Svistov on the Danube to give yet another fiery speech against the government. Stambolov ordered him to return to Ternovo, but the bishop complained to the exarch, and surprisingly the exarch actually sided with the bishop, despite the fact that the bishop was directly violating his orders. Now, understandably, by this point, Stambolov was furious and fired off a curt letter to the exarch, writing, quote, Answer me these questions. Do the two bishops agitate against the prince? Canonically, is it required of them to remember his name in the service? End quote. Stambolov and the exarch knew that the answer to both questions was yes. After this exchange, things finally started to calm down a bit, in part because Stambolov actually appeased the church by using his good relationship with the Ottomans to get Bulgarians kind of... Uh, appointed to bishoprics in Macedonia and thus replacing some Greeks. So he expanded church authority in Macedonia and made them at least happy for a time. 
but relations were still tense, and Ferdinand's Catholicism would remain a thorny issue for many years to come. I'll wrap up today by mentioning a few final events to complete our coverage of 1888. That year saw the founding of the Bulgarian Royal Institute for Natural Sciences, a botanical garden, a zoo, and the Natural History Museum of Sofia. I believe I mentioned before that this Bulgarian National Natural History Museum actually evolved from Ferdinand's extensive personal collection. Also that year, a group of British banks loaned Bulgaria 46.7 million leva to finally buy the Rusevarna railway line. As we mentioned, this track wasn't really commercially viable, so it wasn't really a good deal for Bulgaria, but the loan did pave the way for more credit being available, particularly from German and Austrian banks. Those loans could then be used by Bulgaria to finance further economic development projects. And lastly, a 23-year-old named Pere Toshev attempted to found a new Bulgarian revolutionary organization in Ottoman Thessaloniki. He was a decorated hero from the Serbo-Bulgarian War, and while this attempt really didn't go anywhere, he was actively looking for ways to employ secret revolutionary tactics to advocate for Bulgaria in Ottoman Macedonia and Thrace. And I imagine we'll hear from him again. And so that's it for today. With Russia and the Exarchate failing to influence politics in Bulgaria and trying to change tactics as Stambolov reaches new heights of power and influence. Brigadage continues to be a problem, but the completion of the Vienna to Constantinople rail line marks an enormous achievement for Bulgaria, and one which connects it to the world as never before. Next time, we'll see big changes to several European thrones as Bulgaria continues to develop under the iron fist of Stefan Stambolov. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, check out a link, the link in the description for all kinds of interesting accompanying information, timelines, list of important characters, images, maps, all that good stuff. And I will see you in the next one.